Well, as I said before, thanks for coming. Hey, it's a great turnout, eh? And you will always remember that you're at the first Sovereign Grace Church in Australia. <laughs> you might have been the only church in Australia, Sovereign Grace Church in Australia. But thank you for coming. We, we're going to look at God's Word now, which is it's the most important part of the message. It's the most important part of any service when we stop and we gather around the Word of God. It's the only part of the message, it's the only part of the sermon, which is absolutely infallible. And so I'd like it if you could please turn to 2 Timothy. If you'd like a title for this morning's message, it's First Things First. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and pray, because I need help, which I know you've all caught on to already. Well, Lord, as we begin to gather around your preached word, Lord, we do so soberly and we do so with great expectation because your word is powerful. Your word changes lives. It changes our lives. And so, Lord, as the preaching begins here in Sovereign Grace Church, Lord, would, would I and whoever stands in this pulpit sing of the glories of Calvary when we preach? Would people's eyes be open? Lord, preachers can't do that, but you can. Lord, would you meet people strong where they're weak? Would you give them hope where there is hopelessness? Would you give them grace where they assume that their life is coming to an end? Lord, your word is powerful. And Lord, for these folk today, I pray that you would minister your word to them. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes? Would you affect them? Would you illuminate your word to them? And affect me, Lord, too, as I preach for your glory. Amen. You know, in church life, there are so many important things to do and to get done. And just in the preparation for this local church, for the last 12 weeks, we've just been looking at the, the key values, the important doctrines of, of Sovereign Grace Ministries and what we believe, our passions and, and our priorities. And the truth is there are just so many things in church life that are important. It's important that as a, as a body, as a family of believers, we have a passion for the local church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church isn't just something we rock up to on a Sunday and then go home. That's a service. The church is a bride of Christ. It is something powerful. It is that which has been called by God to redeem the world. It is the vehicle through which the gospel is meant to influence our culture and change people's lives as people do life together and people see that for the glory of God. It's in the local church that sanctification is important. The pursuit of holiness, that one doesn't usually win you too many votes as a pastor, but it's important. We have been declared holy by God. And our life is then, in the midst of sanctification, meant to be becoming holy. Becoming that which we've been declared by the maker of heaven and earth already because of his justifying grace. In the local church, worship is important. And prayer and reading our Bible, spending time in in God's word, meditating on scripture and having our lives blessed and transformed because of that. Pursuing the spiritual gifts is important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians very clearly, eagerly desire the gifts, particularly that you may prophesy. 
That's pretty darn applicational to me. That's evident and clear. So that's something we want to build into the context of pastoral ministry and functioning church life. As is fellowship. You know, church, it is a family. You're able to do life together. There's over 41 another's in Scripture within the context of doing life together, of growing, of applying, of helping, of carrying one another's burdens, of weeping with one another, of rejoicing with one another. It's also important as a church that we enjoy and participate in a context of application. We don't want to be doers, we don't want to just be hearers of the word and not doers, right? We want to hear it. And then we want to take it and say, Lord, you've addressed me. I'm like a man looking in the mirror. I see myself. I want to go away and change. Help me to grow. Help me to become more like Jesus Christ in my life. There are so many things important in church life. And yet here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul points Timothy and indeed us to that which is of first importance. All these things are important. Everything that I've mentioned so far are all important information. But this morning we come to something that is first things first, that is absolutely essential, that is the center of all things, and through things everything else functions. And so as we read this passage today, I want us to read it as if we are indeed Timothy. I want us to read this passage as if the letter was indeed addressed to us, because it is. I want us to read this passage and enjoy it and participate in it as if God is addressing each of us in this room. And I want us to do that because he is. So let's therefore gather around this morning to Timothy chapter 1 and see what Paul says is of first importance. Let's read from verse 3. And we're going to read through to the end of verse 14. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me." You know, if Paul were here today, I'm, I'm convinced that he would be addressing us on this next point. He is about to die. He is about to be executed for his faith. He is about to lose his life. And he wants to appeal to Timothy now an incredibly important statement. We need to listen. 
Follow. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You know, without question, Paul was seriously passionate about the gospel. And he was passionate about the gospel throughout his life and throughout his entire ministry. Without doubt, and unarguably, the cross was the centerpiece of Paul's theology. And whenever you hear him talking and addressing people in Scripture, whether it be his first letter of 1 Thessalonians or his last letter of 2 Timothy, he is singing of the glories of Calvary. The cross is at the center of everything he says and does. And so right here, as he pens his final letter to his son in the faith, his child in the faith, Timothy, as Paul, knowing that he only has a few breaths left, he begins to pen a letter to his son, and he wants to remind Timothy, Timothy, there is something of first importance. There is something more important than anything else. There is something that needs to be addressed in your life and needs to be addressed in the congregations that you serve and you love that is more important than anything else. A centerpiece which everything else comes out of. Timothy, it is the gospel. And so, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words. The sound words which I have given you. Timothy, ensure that as I die, you follow them. Timothy, guard the good deposit. Brandish the gospel. Do not let go of the gospel. Brandish it and take it and let it function in your life and others' lives. Timothy, treasure the gospel. Follow the gospel. Guard the gospel. Do not move on from the gospel. How appropriate it is for us today, don't you think? That as we plant a church, what is the most important thing? Is it being reformed and charismatic? You must be joking. It's the gospel. It's Christ and Him crucified. We are reformed and we are charismatic, but that has a completely secondary level to the gospel. The gospel is the first thing, and the gospel is the glorious main thing. And so as Paul writes this, he encourages Timothy. Timothy, follow. Timothy, treasure. Timothy, guard the good deposit. You know, one of the interesting things that that strikes me about 2 Timothy, and always has, is that Paul doesn't just assume... Timothy's understanding and appreciation for the gospel is sufficient. Have you noticed that? It's almost a little offensive if you stop and think about it at at any length. I mean, Timothy must be thinking, Paul, do you not trust me? What's the problem here? Paul is saying himself that Timothy has known the scriptures from infancy. That's the passage that we just read. He knows that Timothy has been effectively taught by his mother and his grandmother throughout his entire life. And Paul himself has discipled and trained Timothy. Timothy knows the gospel very well. But then in in chapter 2, verse 8, there's just a most hilarious scene. Um, It says, look look at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ. You know, you you read that and you just think, don't. I mean, is this all you know by now? You're just going to remind people about Jesus Christ? It's because Paul knows, Timothy, you will forget. You will forget the gospel. And you will move on from the gospel. And so I know you know the scriptures pertaining to the gospel. I know you've seen my example. I know you've heard so much from your mum and your grandmother. And that's great. But Timothy, remember the gospel. Do not move on from the gospel because you will always have a tendency to move on from the gospel, as do we all. And so in verses 9 and 10, he spends time, Paul does, talking to Timothy again about what? About the gospel. 
You know, folks, if Timothy needed reminding of the gospel, if Timothy needed to be reminded by his father in the faith, Paul, that the main thing is the gospel, then how much more do we? How much more do you need it? How much more do I need it? John Stott, in his commentary on 2 Timothy, says, For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. You know, that was written by John Stott in 1973. He saw that this is what was going to take place. I submit to you that so much we see in churches now and so much we see in Christianity is an effect of what John Stott was saying then. There are so many churches that once held the gospel tightly that are now fumbling it. It is being pushed to the circumference by quirky things. They are emerging left, right and center. I agree that the method of sharing the gospel and the method of allowing the gospel to function can change. But the message must never change. The message must always remain the same. Because the message is the main thing. You lose the main thing, you lose everything. The message is the gospel. So Paul is exhorting Timothy, do not move on from the gospel. Paul Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, all around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, Timothy. They will fumble it. They are in danger of letting it drop altogether. That has grave consequences. So Timothy, follow the gospel. Follow my example. Guard the gospel. Hold it. Do not and never, ever let it go. Why is Paul so lathered up about this? eh? He is pretty excited about the whole thing. He is wanting to ensure that Timothy really gets this. But why? What does it matter even if we do fumble the gospel? What does it matter even if the gospel functions but it is off to the side rather than central? Well, it's with that question in mind that I wanted to take the first three weeks out of our our new church plan to explain why. Because I think there are three reasons in particular that are vital in understanding why the gospel must be first things first. There are three things in particular that are vital as we seek to understand why Paul is so keen that the gospel is the main thing. That the gospel is what it's all about. That the gospel should always be kept at the center. And today we're going to take reason one. If you want to come back next week and the week after... We'd love you to. That would be reason two and three. But this week is this. The reason why we must, the reason why Sovereign Grace Church Sydney must keep the gospel at the center, keep it the main thing, is this. Number one, because it's when we keep first things first that we're able to enjoy grace and detect legalism. Why must we keep first things first? Well, number one, because it's when we do that we're able to enjoy grace and detect legalism. And I saw in the paper just this week that uh, Stephen Hawking uh, is now saying that there is no God and it's just a physics experiment and just that it's all come through physics stuff and that's how the Big Bang was just a physics gravitational pull thing. I thought it was pretty cool. Absolutely nonsense, but it's quite clever to even think of it. But the Bible never says that. The Bible talks about a big bang. It was a mother of a big bang, and it was all caused by God. You know, the Bible sings of the big bang, but it was just God at the center of it. God making it happen. And the Bible sings of the praises of the gospel. You see, you and I have not just come from primordial slime, or we haven't just evolved from an amoeba. Um, you know, some people may look like they have now and again, but honestly, we, we have not. We have not come from that. We haven't just evolved in any shape or form. 
And when I said someone, I was actually thinking about myself. Because, and I know you're probably thinking the same thing. But it's awkward. You have to look at me, so keep looking. So, but the important thing is, is we must understand that God actually made us. And he made us to delight in him. He made us to worship him. He made us for his glory. And he made us so that we can find our identity and joy and purpose and peace in him. We were made for God to be with God and enjoy his presence. The problem is mankind, including me, rejected him. We exchanged the creator for the created. We exchanged the creator, the, the amazing grace of God in all the earth. We, we, we exchanged all of him for what we actually see. The world, the things in the world, the money, the sex, the rock and roll. We exchanged all of what God really is in creating to, for the actual creation itself. And there are consequences to that. And the Bible speaks of them very clearly. Because of our sin, we are cut off from God. We are unable to spend time with a holy God because we're sinners. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that man is destined to die once. And after that, he faces judgment. You know, it's a a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet the Bible says that in and of ourselves, because we've rejected God, we are all on a collision course to stand before him on that day and give an account for our lives. What are we going to say? His standard is holiness. And we have fallen well short. And he could have left us like that. But in his amazing grace, he didn't. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God put on flesh. He clothed himself with muscle and bone and skin and was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He was born into a stable and then at about my age, mid-30s, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Why did he do that? What was all that taking place? It seems on the face of it a desperate tragedy. But no, it was a triumph. It's what he came for. He came to give life and life in abundance. He came so that people could see him and have him and take him as their substitute. He was dying as the wrath bearer. He was dying as a propitiation for our sins. He was dying so that he could become sin for us and we could instead have his life and have his blessing. My friends, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if that is your story, then you need to know this is good news. You are saved. You are completely and utterly saved. You're forgiven of your sin. Think about it. Let it affect your heart. You are forgiven of your sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. God has taken it and he has cast it on his son, Jesus Christ, so that you bear it no more. You're forgiven. You're washed clean of everything. Oh, you bet your life. You are as clean as a whistle. You are forgiven of your sin. He has taken it and he has cast it into the deeps. You're also justified. You get that? You've been declared righteous. When you stand before God, he sees you as pure as his son. How's that? Because he's justified you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have already stood before the throne of grace. And his gavel as the judge has come down on your life and he has declared you justified. He's declared you clean. He's not only forgiven you, he has taken his son's good works and he has clothed them on you. Do you feel like that? Do you see that? You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a done deal, justified and forgiven. But even that isn't all. You're also adopted. He's taken you and he's taken me. People who were once his enemy. People, if you were like me, 
who weren't just his enemy, but who were actively running away from him. He's taken people like me and you, a people that were once his enemy, and put us now at his table, where he oversees us as a father, as a carer, as a redeemer. He's acquainted with all your ways. He knows your frame. He hems you in as a believer, both behind and before. He watches your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. Are you going to make it to the end on that last day? If you're a Christian, you bet your life you will. Why? Because he's holding you. He loses none that he has given. He brandishes you. He takes you by the arms. And his grip is an unending grip of grace. He holds you. So you are not only forgiven. You are not only justified. You are adopted into the very family of God. An heir of Christ. Declared a child of the king. And one day you're going to see him. And you'll see him face to face. See, the problem with Christianity so often is people think this is home. This isn't home. We were made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus Christ and that place is heaven to be with him. This is just where we serve Jesus in the meantime. Heaven is your home. A place where there'll be no more pain. Where there'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more heart disease. No more cancer. No more AIDS. No more suffering. No more foot problems. No more toothache. Dentists will be sacked in heaven. And I will be at the top of the queue saying, you are fired. I mean, that would just be a precious moment because they are just sickos. But at the end of the day, there will be no more of that in the context of heaven. There will be no more pain. There'll be no more sin. You won't be opening your paper to find somebody else has been murdered. Someone else has been raped. Some other child has suffered unquestionable things. You won't be reading that anymore. There'll be no more decay, no more corruption, no more death. And I haven't been a pastor 10 years. I've sat with people when they're dying. There's something very unnatural about it. There is something unnatural about it. In heaven, we return to what we were made for eternal life. There will be no more death, no more pain. Instead, there will be great joy. We will be in a place that resounds with the praises of God. There will be feasting and drinking and partying. So often our media represents what heaven is going to be like as if that's hell and that's where we want to go. And heaven as if we're little fluffy clouds on on sort of little, we're we're all about this tall. Have you noticed that? We're about this tall. Little white wings. It's, it's, it's always awkward, but you just think, I don't want to do that. I think I want to go to hell. What, what so often is represented in our media as hell is so often heaven. The joy and the excitement and the singing that is taking place. I mean, imagine what it's going to be like. Everything that you see in the world has been made by Jesus Christ. Everything has been crafted by God. Every craftsman, every artist, every musician that has ever lived in this earth has been given those gifts by the crafter and author and maker of heaven. Isn't it going to be amazing? And there we will be with many people. We'll be with Noah. We'll be with Abraham. We'll be with all the disciples. We'll be able to rock up to Enoch and say, Enoch, where did you go? I mean, what happened there? What, what was going on? It's just going to be unique. There'll be angels. There'll be people from every tribe and language and nation all worshipping around the throne of grace, singing praises to Jesus Christ as the spotless king and lamb. Jesus will be there. And you will get to look him in his eyes. And you, like me, will be able to take off your crown. Say, this is yours. My friends, if that doesn't get you excited about the gospel, 
I'm not sure if you're a Christian. I mean, this is, this is vital. This is life-giving truth. Jesus Christ came so that you may have life and life in abundance. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are adopted and heaven is your home. We are made, therefore, to enjoy grace. God wants us to be amazed by grace. He doesn't want us rocking up to the AFL and showing more excitement when they score a goal than we do thinking about our own salvations. That is just wrong. That is insane. Jesus Christ has died for us. He clothed himself in flesh and died in our place so that we may have life and life in abundance. Well, let's enjoy it then, right? He is amazing. And we're made, therefore, to enjoy his grace. The challenge is so often we don't. I'm aware of it in my life too. I go through seasons where I notice that I'm just not affected by grace in the same way. Why? Why? Why is that? Having been a recipient of such scandalous grace, why is it that we can move away from not enjoying that? Well, well, here's what. I think the challenge is so often we're not amazed by grace and we're not enjoying grace because all too easily we succumb to our inbuilt tendency and temptation towards legalism. Now you can hear that and you can think, whoa, I'm not a legalist. Well, stay with me. Because I have legalistic tendencies too. Sinclair Ferguson says, The practical importance of justification cannot be exaggerated. The glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sin. Listen. But our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into his work of grace. Did you hear that? Our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into his work of grace. It is so easy to try and smuggle character into our standing before the Lord when actually our standing before the Lord is all of grace. It is despite our behavior and all because of his behavior. And yet it is so easy to get that confused and to smuggle character into our relationship with God, which is actually all of Grace, it is so wrong, yet so easy to do. C.J. Mahaney, you will discover, by the way, as you come week after week, that I, am, I have no original thoughts. I am effectively a walking quote. So C.J. Mahaney, he says this. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Legalism, in essence, is our attempt to substitute our works for his finished work. In a phrase, legalism is self-atonement. Now, legalism is nasty. Legalism is, is serious. And in very nature, it's insepid. You see, the problem with legalism in nature is it is the height of arrogance. We haven't realized how sinful we really are and how holy he really is. And we think that our behavior, our Bible reading or our prayer actually closes the gap. Are you kidding me? It's a chasm. It's the height of arrogance to think that our performance is affecting him in that way. It's also the height of arrogance because we're squarely looking at the Lord in the eye when we are trying to smuggle in our character into our forgiveness by him, our justification by him, our acceptance by him. When we're trying to smuggle in our works, we're basically looking Jesus in the eye and saying, what you did was good, but you need what I've done as well. 
Is that what we mean? Do we really think Christ's work was insufficient? It was nearly sufficient, but we also need my Bible reading, otherwise I won't get in. No. It's a work all of grace. Nothing will rob our joy in the gospel more, which is where I'm going with this. Nothing will rob our joy in the gospel more, though, than our tendency towards self-atonement. Our tendency to try and smuggle in works and legalism. And folks, I know it well in my own life because I've lived like this before many, many times. You know the reason why it happens? Here's the reason why it happens in my life. Because I forget and get confused between sanctification and justification. They are two different things. There is sanctifying grace and there is justifying grace. So often we get them confused and that's why we end up with legalism. But they are two very different things. Listen. Let me explain to you. Justification is a position before the Lord. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It is a position. Sanctification is a process. It's something that God is doing in us. We are being made more righteous. We have been declared righteous in justifying grace. Sanctifying grace, we're being made into that which we've already been declared. Justification is objective. It's something he has done for you. You know that you're forgiven. You know that you're justified and adopted, not because of your behavior, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. It's something he has done objectively. Sanctification is something he's doing in us. It's subjective. It takes time. There's differing degrees. Justification is immediate and complete. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian 358 years or two seconds. You are equally justified before the Lord. He is singing over you. He has forgiven you. He has adopted you. He has justified you in full. He accepts you in full because it's not a process. It's a position. It is complete. It is full because of the grace of God. Whereas sanctification, it's gradual. It takes time. We pursue holiness and we grow in it. And it's when we get these confused that I think we so often then fall into legalism. Let me explain further. Did, do you ever, did you ever have the Generations game here? No? You're all looking at me and saying, who, who is this idiot? You didn't. You have missed out. I mean, this is a quality game. I grew up on the Generations game. What, the way it worked is you had a couple of family members versus a couple of family members. And they got set tasks. So, like, you know, it'd be like a a famous chef would come in and they'd have to make an omelet in about two minutes. And then one family would have a go and the other family would have a go and then they would score them and all that type of thing. And it was always always a lot of fun. Well, my favorite thing on the Generation Game was always the plate spinner. They had this plate spinner and I just loved it when he rocked out. Because I was, I I, I mean, I haven't, I've still got some growing up issues to do when it comes to entertainment. I, I still enjoy things like that. So I like to sit with my children and watch the children's programs. And even when they've gone, I'm usually still sitting there. I enjoy that type of thing. And I really enjoy the, the plate spinner. The plate spinner on the Generations game was, was so much fun because they would come on and it would be both fascinating and terrifying. They would come on and of course they put the, the plate on the top and then they get the long cane and they start spinning it. And you think, that's easy, one. But then he goes for another one. And then he goes for a third. And before you know it, he is all over the stage. And you get to about here. And there's idiots like me looking at the screen going, Ah! Oh, it's going to fall! It's going to fall! And just at that time, he would seem to know. He clearly heard you. And he's spinning the plate over here to get it going again. At which point, it's, it's still rocking over there. And the guy would be all around the stage. And just when you think, just when you think, one is going to fall. No, no, it never falls because he knows exactly what he's doing and he keeps all these bad boys in the air all the time. It is a great experience. What has that got to do with this message? 
Here's what. I think the plate spinner that I used to see on the Generations game is the equivalent of what a legalistic Christian is. They're the same. See, imagine if you will, a young guy who just gets saved. It's a young man and he turns up to church and he hears about Jesus. He hears about the gospel. We had a couple of folk just saved two weeks ago. A Chinese couple that, that are uh, coming along, which is just wonderful news. Imagine though, it's not them, it's another couple. And this young man, he, he gets saved and he is just amazed by Jesus. He's just thinking, Jesus is amazing. He's worshiping. You watch him worship and you just think, he don't want to go home at the end of the meeting because this guy is just lost and wonder his praise. He's amazed that God has forgiven him, that he's adopted him, that he's justified him. He is simply amazed by grace. And after about three weeks, a very kind individual in the church goes up to him and says, hey, I've just been so encouraged by your enthusiasm for the Lord. This is just so exciting to see what God is doing in your life. Have you heard about Bible reading at all? He says, no, well, not, not really. You know, I, I've heard the guy preaching a little bit, and I read my Bible a little bit. And he said, listen, I, I would really encourage you to read the Bible through in a year. And he thinks, yeah, all right, sounds pretty cool. At this point, here's what he does. He, he takes up the Bible reading plate, and he puts it on, and he starts spinning the Bible reading plate. And it's going well. In fact, it's going very well because everybody at church knows it's going well because he comes in on a Sunday morning and says, check it out. Yep, yep, seven chapters of Genesis this week. And, and he's spinning the plate and it's all very good. And then somebody else comes and says, it is so good to see you spinning the, the Bible reading plate. But what about meditation? It's like, what? Me- meditation? What, it, what's that all about? It's, what's Psalm 1, pal? You know, we're called to meditate on the scriptures. And All right, well, I haven't heard of that, but I'll give it a go. So he gets the other plate, and he starts meditating on God's Scripture. And there he's got two, and this is is going well. And it's going okay until somebody says to him, what about studying God's Word? Because meditation is good, Bible reading in a year, that's great. But what about real studying, getting into depth? I mean, you're a new believer, and you want to grow, right? Okay, I'll give it a go. So he picks up that plate, and he starts studying God's Word. And so he's he's reading, and he's meditating, and he's studying. It's going well. He's feeling a little awkward because there's one a bit out of range there, but he's trying his best. And then somebody says, well, what about prayer? You know, have you heard about prayer? You mean you don't pray for your friends? What about doing to receive? He thinks, I better start praying. So now on the way to work, he's starting to get up a little bit earlier, and he's got post-it notes on his head because he's memorizing scripture, and he's got his prayer list out every morning because he's praying for the world and he's praying for everybody that he's ever met. So that's good, and that's good. And then somebody says to him, You don't just want to pray for him. You need to evangelize to him, pal. You need to tell him about Jesus. You need to write down your one life. You need your one life. And you need to be praying for them, finding scriptures for them, and then sharing the gospel with them. So he starts to put this, and slowly but surely he's getting a stage going on. And then somebody says, you know, are you serving in the church? I've just noticed that you, you just seem to be standing around and not really serving in the church. And at the same time, somebody comes and says, it's not just serving, is it? You don't come to life group, do you? You don't. You're not growing, are you? We need to function in a life group. We need to apply God's word. We need to care for each other. Okay, I'll do it. So they start coming to life group. He starts coming to Sunday morning. And then somebody else says to him, well, what about worship? Because worship's great on the Sunday morning, but you really want to be in the week, just spending time with the Lord, amazed by who God is and enjoy worshiping him. So he racks them all up. And he, just four weeks ago, he's just rocking up on the front row excited about Christianity, but now he's got a lot of plates. And they're good plates, right? None of those are wrong. But here's what starts to happen. That guy who used to be at the front worshiping with abandon, you notice week by week he changes his position. Some weeks he is at the front still worshiping. And other weeks he's sitting at the back and he, he just looks troubled. He looks weighed down. 
He looks like he's got about 300 pounds of luggage behind him every, everywhere he goes. And you just think, why, why is that? Why is this variant? Well, uh, here's why. You see, what has happened in, in this guy's life is he has misunderstood the difference between sanctification and justification. He has misunderstood that all these plates are ways given to us by the Lord to experience his grace. They're all ways that he has given us in his amazing grace to experience him as we sing, as we read, as we pray. We get to marvel at how great Jesus is. But this guy doesn't realize that. He has misrepresented these, and instead of seeing these as ways of experiencing God's grace, he thinks of all the plates as ways of earning God's grace. So some weeks he's doing well. His Bible reading's gone well. His prayer's gone well. He's reached out to the world. He's sitting on the front row. Thank you, Jesus. I'm here. I'm doing well. But more often than not for this guy, the sound you can hear are the smashing plates. And as you hear the smashing plates, you look at his eyes and he's sitting at the back, thinking that I'm not sure if God is going to accept me this week. I don't feel so forgiven. I've just blown it. I'm not sure I fit in this church. I'm just not a very good Christian. Do you see what he's done? He's tried to smuggle in works instead of understanding that all these plates are nothing to do with my standing before God. Instead of understanding that Jesus Christ has paid it all. Jesus Christ is singing over me. God is singing over me because Jesus Christ has died in my place so that I am fully forgiven, fully adopted, fully justified, fully heaven is my home. Instead of believing that, he thinks that I'm mostly Jesus, but I've got to do all these things as well, otherwise God won't accept me. It's wrong. It is rubbish. And behold, when you do that, the legalist in you. And I've seen it in my life. I've had times in my life when my week has gone badly. And do you know what I feel like? I feel like sitting near the back. I feel disappointed. I feel that maybe God is tolerating me. It's not true. You stand before the Lord forgiven and adopted and justified, not because of your behavior. You stand before the Lord justified and adopted and forgiven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. He has paid it all. He has done it all. Martin Luther says, The only contribution we make to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. That's all you add. That's all you bring. All you rock up with as you stand before the Lord wondering how he's going to accept you are the nails in the hands of Jesus Christ. Nothing shall we bring. Simply to the cross we must cling. But you know what I've discovered? Nothing robs us of the joy of the gospel more than when we start to smuggle in character. My friends, we have to flee from character. We have to flee from works. All these things are good things I don't want you to misunderstand. I would love you to read your Bible. I'd love you to evangelize. I'd love you to pray. I'd love you to worship. They're all great things. All important things are ways of experiencing the Lord. But if you think that you stand before God because of them, then here's my pastoral advice. Then let them drop. Let him smash on the floor and flee from them all and stand before the Lord and you will still be forgiven. You will still be adopted and you will still be justified. Jesus Christ has paid it all, not in part, but in full. All of your sin has been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. He's done it all. So what's the remedy? How do we 
how do we ensure that first things first is our story? How do we ensure that we position ourselves to enjoy grace and detect legalism and flee from legalism and go back to enjoying just the gospel? Well, here's what John Stott says. He says, The cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. We live lives amazed by grace when we daily get close to the gospel and allow its sparks to fall on us. A great book I'd love you to get is C.J. Mahaney's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. That book affected me hugely just in understanding what is God's responsibility and what is mine. What is justification? What is sanctification? But in essence, as you seek to allow the sparks of the cross to fall in you, I simply encourage you, find ways to read, to study, to pray, to sing and review the gospel. Come back to it daily. I believe legalism is a daily tendency. You will not go any days without feeling a tendency towards either wanting to smuggle something in or with lack of smuggling in feel condemned. That's the way we're made. We all want to put flesh in there. So it is a daily temptation and tendency. So we need to daily read, review, pray, sing, anything we can do to get back to the gospel. And what is the fruit of that? You find yourself amazed in Jesus Christ. You're aware that this is scandalous. That it's really not about me, it's about him. Christianity, in essence, really isn't about what you can do for Jesus. It's primarily about what he has done for you. And it's learning to delight in it so that he really does receive all the praise. Let's stand together and let's pray. If the band could come back up, that would be great. Well, Lord, I thank you that your gospel is so profoundly clear. Lord, we're not left guessing as to what we're meant to do with it, other than we're meant to stand amazed to it and then go and apply it. And Lord, I pray for us the application today would be simply losing ourselves in wonder and praise of what you've done. Lord, I thank you that you really have done it all. You have paid the price in full. You have nailed our sin to the cross. We stand here forgiven and adopted and reconciled, not because of our behavior, but because of yours. And so, Lord, in your amazing grace, as we close in song, would we find ourselves freshly humbled and freshly amazed at what you've done? Lord, it's all for your glory. Amen.